Welcome to Managed Carecast, a podcast from the American Journal of Managed Care. Hi, and thank you for joining the Managed Carecast. I'm Mandy Bishop, the co-host of this podcast series brought to you by the American Journal of Managed Care. With me today is my illustrious guest, the one, the only, Dr. Danny Sands. Danny, thank you so much for being here. Oh, it's my pleasure, Mandy. I'm, I'm thrilled to have you. You are a man who wears many hats. You are a physician executive consultant. You are a clinical assistant professor at Harvard Medical School, and you are the co-founder and chair of the Society for Participatory Medicine. Where on earth do you find the time, Danny? Well, it's, you know, you, you devote time to things that are important to you, right? <laughs> absolutely. Absolutely. Well, thank you so much for joining us. I, I'm really excited to have you on the, on the podcast. And I'd like to start with understanding how you found your way to healthcare. What drove you to this profession? Well, I, it's interesting. I, uh, I didn't always know that I wanted to definitely do healthcare. Um, and I actually went off to college thinking that I was either going to do healthcare, I was going to either do medicine or I was going to do law of all things, or I was going to do this field of engineering called operations research because I've been doing a lot of work with computers and I thought that was a really cool field. I eventually decided on medicine um, for a, a kind of interesting reasons. And one is that it was a process of elimination, which was that I couldn't, I didn't really enjoy the advanced mathematics classes that I had to take for the, uh, the engineering degree that I was interested in. And, uh, and uh, the people were kind of a little bit odd too. So that dropped out. Uh, I took a uh, interdisciplinary course uh, called uh, law and medicine. And uh, I, I realized two things. One is, is that if you're going to go into law, you're going to read really long books and lots of cases. And then also, every time I had to interpret a case, I just totally missed the point. Meanwhile, I liked my, uh, my introductory uh, biology course much more than I expected to. And at the same time, a strange dynamic was happening where every time somebody was sick on my freshman hall, they would come and ask me what to do. <laughs> I mean, there were plenty of other people on the hall, plenty of other pre-meds, but it was like, why, why ask me? What do I know? Right? He became the resident so diagnostic of medicine. Exactly. Fantastic, fantastic. And so you, you went through pre-med and came out on the other side, but yet from all of the interactions that you and I have had, I feel like you have retained a sense of wonder about both the technology, that engineering aspect, as well as the respect for the law. So I think that having that trifecta or having exposure to that trifecta has been very valuable and, and probably very informative, especially in the last decade or so, right? With all of the changing regulations, with all of the integration of technology and the enablement of certain uh, healthcare delivery processes with technology, I would imagine has been very helpful. Yeah, I mean, my frustration came uh, at one point, I was in my, uh, my medical training and I had this background in technology and I could not believe that when I was, you know, in, in the hospital and, and taking care of patients, that people were not taking advantage of technologies that were available. They were depending on the frail human memory to do things. And I think they were making errors. And, uh, and it was just so upsetting to me that I really, I just needed to either get out of this profession altogether or find a way to wed the information and communication technology to the healthcare. And so that's when I pursued uh, formal training in uh, uh, clinical informatics. Uh, which I did at uh, Beth Israel in Boston and uh, Harvard Medical School. Oh, wonderful. And, and that is, I believe, where you met our mutual friend, 
e-patient Dave DeBronckhart was at Beth Israel Deaconess in Boston, right? That was many, many years later, but yes, uh, Yes. indeed, he was uh, one of my patients eventually, that's true. Wonderful, wonderful. So I I think that that convergence of technology into healthcare and our ability to continue moving forward with finding the best options for technology to enable healthcare is something that is driving a lot of opportunities. You mentioned consumer informatics, driving a lot of opportunities for consumer informatics to enable more participatory medicine. And on that front, I wanna talk a lot about what is the Society for Participatory Medicine and what role is technology playing in that type of a collaborative care model? Sure, well, let me, let me bring you through my personal experience and, yeah. and that may help understand where my uh, later thinking comes from. Absolutely. Um, I, I, was, I started out my career in, in informatics and clinical computing because I, was, I was really wanted to develop technologies to help clinicians, doctors, nurses, et cetera, take better care of patients. So that was what I was doing. That's what I was de- dedicated to. I did a whole bunch of work in that area. At the same time, in my own practice, I was seeing patients in a primary care practice part-time. Um, I, I started using email with patients very, very early on. This is back in 1991. And I was communicating with many of my patients using email. And it seemed perfectly natural to, to me uh, to start doing that. And, um, and, and I became really intrigued by the fact that this thing, this thing called email, which at the time was kind of very high tech, right. really actually did, did several things. One is, is that it, it helped me take better care of my patients and it helped to improve uh, the relationship that we had and sort of augmented that relationship in between visits. And, and I became to understand, uh, you know, that this technology, you know, had all these different attributes that made it very useful in patient care, much more useful in some cases, or at least complementarily, complementarily so to the, uh, to the visit. And then with the advent of the World Wide Web uh, in the mid-90s, all these healthcare websites are, uh, were out there. And that was really uh, interesting. And I observed how my patients were able to interact online. I started prescribing websites and information to my patients. And so all of this sort of came together in, in my um, thinking that this is not just a tool for clinicians, but this is a tool for patients as well. Right. And it's a tool to connect patients to clinicians. So this thing, this technology, this internet, the web, was, was all of that. And that was really quite dramatic. And then I, I, I brought this all together in, in my, my uh, collaborative work, uh, developing one of the nation's first patient portals, um, uh, which we developed in 1999. Um, and uh, this was a, a portal that, just like today's patient portals, is still in use today. It allowed for secure communications. It allowed for uh, clinicians to prescribe information to patients. Patients could look at their record online, all these tremendous things, bringing all these things together. And it really helped me understand that the technology enabled this, this partnership. And so that led to my um, uh, falling in with a, a group of people that were brought together by a man named Tom Ferguson. And, and starting back uh, around uh, the turn of the century, we'll say, um, he was bringing together a bunch of interesting people who were doing different things in changing the way we think about healthcare. And uh, I was one of them, and there were other people who were uh, consumer health activists and people who ran information websites for, 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 for parents of kids, for example. Um, 
um, people who uh, um, did, did all kinds of research, for example, in the field. So we had all these people coming together, sharing ideas, and eventually this group of people hatched this idea called uh, the Society for Participatory Medicine. Um, and, and in fact, at that point, I had dragged Dave into this thing. So this gets us back to Dave. <laughs> Dave so, is, so you probably want to ask me about Dave. Well, of, of course I want to ask you about Dave. So we'll, we'll come back to the society in just a second. But yes, let's, let's talk about Dave. So Dave, um, Dave came to me. So we had already built the portal. I was already thick into, you know, working with this group of people and sort of redefining what healthcare should be. And, um, and I, one day I got this uh, patient that was referred to me actually by the president of our hospital, uh, Paul Levy. Um, and he, um, this guy came to me named Dave DeBronckart. And um, Dave uh, uh, came to me, because he was referred to me because of my ideas about what patient care should be and my use of technology and so on. And Dave just thought this was great. And he thought, uh, he actually sent me a note about this, uh, this patient portal thing. And he, he said, God, it's amazing that it, it's changing the way that, uh, that, that I feel about getting my health care. I feel like I'm actually a, not just a patient, but also a customer, a consumer. And, um, and uh, one day, I won't bore you with all the details, but, but one day, Dave um, uh, came to my office after having moved away for a while, and he came back to see me. And um, um, he was having a, you know, several issues we needed to deal with. And one of them was some shoulder pain, for which I referred him to an orthopedist. And uh, long story short, it turned out that his shoulder was nothing very serious, but he had an unusual finding in his lung. And it turned out to be something very, very bad. And as we went through this process of trying to figure out what it was, and then finally we diagnosed him. Uh, we found out that he had metastatic uh, kidney cancer. Um, along the way, we, we often tell the story about how technology changed this whole experience. So, for example, I encouraged him to look at patient site and look at all of his test results all the time to okay. send me questions that he had. I encouraged him to uh, connect with an online patient community, uh, which he later says really saved his life. I encouraged him to set up a website to let friends and family know what's going on with him. And, uh, and, and through this experience, um, you know, he was able to make it through uh, the therapy and actually came out on the other end and, 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 and did well. You know, he's, he's not good. He's done very well over these a number of years. And um, so, so that is a, is, a, is a case study of how this technology can be very, very transformational. And you know, when after Dave came out of this, that's when I brought him into this group of uh, uh, crazy people uh, that, that that were coming together to reimagine healthcare. And it was then uh, at one of these uh, meetings that we had together that we uh, created this idea of the uh, society. That's that's amazing, and it's interesting in hearing you talk about this and hearing and thinking that 1991 with email, the mid 90s, you know, being on the forefront of the advent of the web. This, this desire to leverage technology to better communicate or more effectively communicate with your patients, you were definitely a pioneer, right? And I think even still, there is 
a very large segment of clinicians who are reluctant to acknowledge or to embrace these types of opportunities for technology-assisted patient collaboration. And can you talk to me a little bit about yeah. that? Yeah. Yeah, you know, that's a really interesting thing. So, so in, as I said, in the 90s, even before the web came out, I was using email with uh, many of my patients. Um, certainly, you know, in the mid-90s when the web came out, everybody started getting an email address. And I thought, this is it. This is the tipping point. Uh, everybody's going to want to use this. This is just fantastic. And, uh, and, in, uh, and what, what I found out as, as surveys were done, national surveys, we found out that, well, um, it turned out the majority, vast majority of patients would really like to email with their physicians. And I said, yes, that's exactly what we want. This is good. It's going to reduce the cost of health care, improve the quality, improve satisfaction. This is great. Right. But the other part of the survey was about physicians. And it turned out that physicians did not want to do this. And, and the number of physicians who were doing it was very, very small. And so that was a challenge. And it was in that, um, at that time, uh, so in 1998, I worked with a group of people. I, I co-authored the uh, very first guidelines to talk about using email with patients. And I, I published those through the American Medical Informatics Association. And, you know, they got, they got a lot of press. And I said, yeah, this is it. This is, this is going to be the tipping point because we're going to show physicians how to do this. And we have the accumulated wisdom of people like me and some colleagues who, you know, are going to tell them the right way to do this. I right. said, this will be the tipping point. And you know what? Physicians just were just not impressed. They were not excited about this in any way. It was not good at all. And so as excited as everybody was about this idea, physicians still remained resistant. And um, I'd like to say that things are very different today, but as you know, Mandy, they're not that different. Right. So what we have done is we've managed to increase the proportion of physicians who are messaging with patients, uh, usually through patient portals. And, and most of that was driven by the meaningful use regulations. Right. And some large mm -hmm. institutions like Kaiser that actually encourage their physicians to do this. But there's still so many physicians who do it reluctantly, and they try to avoid it at all costs. So, yeah, there is still certainly the resistance uh, there, and we're going to have to just deal with this. And, and, and I think, Mandy, and this is you know, relevant, I think, to, to your listeners, is that as long as we're stuck in this fee-for-service model, and all we're paying for is seeing more and more patients in less and less time. And we don't give a hoot about quality. We don't give a hoot about experience. We don't give a hoot about value. You know, there's still going to be resistance to these, these kind of things. We need to move to, uh, uh, we need to move fully to an environment in which we're paid for the value of the services that we're giving. We're paid to, to, to you know, have a, you know, have, uh, have good satisfaction with our healthcare uh, uh, encounters, to have our patients uh, uh, get great value or the payers get great value for it. Um, we want to improve the quality of the outcomes we get. Those are the things that should motivate us. And, and once we think about it that way, if we could actually step back and say, what would you do, doctor, if you had to keep costs down and quality up and satisfaction up? 
Well, you wouldn't haul patients into your office every time they had a problem. You right. would take advantage of things like patient portals and, and uh, asynchronous and even synchronous messaging at times, uh, telemedicine. There are all kinds of things you might do to, to, uh, to have that kind of a practice. But again, right now, by and large, that's not what we're paid for. Well, and, and changing that paradigm of how we deliver care based on an acceptance of a value system that is outside of our normal fee-for-service world requires evidence, right? So we're building evidence and seeking to build evidence that more collaborative care models do, in fact, drive value and drive both financial value as well as kind of intrinsic value to the patients. And I know that the society has recently embarked upon a really unique research opportunity to look at collaborative care, best practice methodology, and the development of evidence around these types of paradigms. Let's talk a little bit about that. So just to step back, the society uh, is doing what it's doing to uh, uh, change the, the culture of healthcare yes. um, by focusing on four pillars. And, and those four pillars, they, they spell out the word care, but that was actually totally an accident. Um, the first one is, is, is to have conversations uh, uh, among diverse stakeholders in healthcare. The second is advocacy, to, uh, to advocate for, for uh, the principles of participatory medicine and healthcare policy and so on. And the, the, uh, I'll skip over the R for a second, we'll come back to that. The E is education, to educate both healthcare professionals as well as lay people and, and, and caregivers, patients and caregivers. Um, and, and so we're doing all those things. And then the R in care is research. And although we don't do research, uh, one of the very first things we did as a society is we created a peer-reviewed journal, the Journal of Participatory Medicine. Yep. Um, and, but in a, and what we've recently done is we've recently uh, partnered with the Weill Cornell Medical Center in New York, and we are uh, building a research library, uh, a participatory medicine research library. And the idea there is to have a curated collection of the best evidence uh, to support the, the practice of participatory medicine. And, and you know, so, so some of that might be transparency in healthcare, some of that may be um, evidence for uh, the use of patient portals, the use of uh, email, uh, collaboration in healthcare between patients and providers, there are all kinds of different things that will, will flow into this. So we're very excited about that project. We, uh, we're at the early stages, certainly, but we, we, we'd really like this to be a resource uh, like the Cochrane Library, except focused deep in this particular area. Excellent. And then I would think as part of that, you know, that care, the conversation, advocacy, the research, the education, and, be, and building this body of evidence to support the positive outcomes associated with a collaborative care, you know, collaborative care model. Um, do you believe that this type of approach to medicine is going to make its way into medical education, is going to make its way into part of the broader fabric of medicine and healthcare delivery here? Well, I certainly hope so, because as you know, we're not getting value as a, as a country. We're spending too much on healthcare. We're not getting value uh, for our investment. We've got to change the way we do things. Nobody's happy right now. Absolutely. And, and if we can change the way we think about healthcare. If we can reimagine healthcare as not just a service industry or an industrial uh, uh, process, but as a collaboration between the patient and the doctor, where the goal of that collaboration is around the patient's health, improving the patient's health, 
then yeah, I think that will really change things. And yes, that's why we have this education piece of what we're doing because as you know, as we establish the element, we need the uh, as we establish the evidence. What we need to be doing is we need to be educating people. We need to be educating the healthcare professionals, and not just people who are in practice right now, but we also need to be educating people who are in pre-professional education. Um, so early in their careers, we need to sort of move upstream for the healthcare professional. Right. But at the same time, we need to do the same thing with uh, patients and, uh, and family caregivers. We need to be teaching them how to become e-patients, uh, how to be uh, engaged, empowered, educated, enlightened. This is the way we define e-patients. Tom Ferguson, who was, again, the inspiration for us, he defined e-patient term that way. It's not about electronic. The technology is just an enabler of all of this. So we need to be teaching these things to today's consumers, but we should be moving upstream there as well. And we should be teaching this in grade school. You know, we're, we're, we've gotten better, you know, with successive generations at teaching uh, young people in school, teaching, teaching kids how to be more savvy consumers in general how to understand a TV commercial and cut through the, the BS and really understand what they're saying and that kind of stuff. But we haven't really done that in, in, in health class. We haven't really taught them how to be better healthcare consumers, how to be more engaged and active and, and comfortable speaking to their physicians and those sorts of things. Those are skills that we need to have. So, so we have a system right now in which we have sort of this codependency between the patients and the physicians. And, you know, nobody's really happy with it. But on the other hand, we sort of innate, you know, so we have physicians who don't want to release information. They don't want to release power. And they like to feel powerful in front of our patients. And then we have patients who are sort of, you know, they're sort of comfortable in this meek role. Uh, and they don't want to impose on, on the doctor. And, and that dynamic really has to change. And it is changing. I mean, I think we're definitely seeing movement in the right direction, but it's not changing fast enough. And I'm impatient about that. And I really think we've got to make those changes culturally in the way we practice. As you were talking, I was imagining a consumer informatics for kindergartners class where we could teach five and six-year-old children how to have an informed conversation with your pediatrician about your symptoms, right? So how to, how to engage, yeah. how to catalog your symptoms and how to recognize what is happening with you so that you can articulate those things that, you know, that matter to, you know, to the physician and, and starting there and then adding components like uh, insurance literacy and being able to talk about and understand fundamental differences between insurance plans and understanding the terminology that you would hear from a physician or from your insurance company. You're right. We're, we're missing this entire consumer education component from grade school on up. <laughs> Exactly. Exactly right. And I, I'm and I'm seeing it. So in the in the insurance area, even in the healthcare area, I see it with my kids now. My kids are in uh, one of them's just graduating college. One of them recently graduated college, and it's really interesting because I'm looking at the way they see healthcare now as they're sort of becoming more independent. You know, they're not going to pediatricians anymore. They've got to figure out you know, how does this healthcare system work? You know, what's a referral? Um, how do I ask, you know, am I allowed to ask my doctor this sort of thing? What, what's a copay? You know, all this stuff. You know, it'd be really great if kids learn this earlier uh, in, in school.
It would be. And it's interesting when you mentioned the copay, I'm trying to think of when I first heard that term. And I think it was when I got my first job. I think that that was the first time that I read that language and heard that term and had to ask questions about what that means from a financial perspective and otherwise. Yes. And it's, it's a shame, right, that we would get to that point um, where, where we are adults, full adults in our own right, but have not had even the most minor level of health literacy or health care system literacy and, and understanding of how to have those types of meaningful engagements with our providers as well as with the insurers that, that occupy our system space. So you mentioned that you were impatient. And I, I too am impatient, and I would very much like to see us turn the tide on this literacy challenge and then this kind of migration towards a collaborative care model and the delivery of true value to patients and caregivers and clinicians and insurers, you know, to all of the stakeholders in the healthcare system. How long do you think we're going to have to wait before we reach a tipping point and collaborative care becomes the de facto best practice for the practice of medicine? Well, uh, you know, I, I don't know if we really get to a tipping point. Um, I, I think that in some ways this is uh, all tied up with this issue of when do we reach the tipping point of uh, how we practice healthcare. Um, that is, you know, when you have over X percent of your patients that are paid in um, uh, non-fee-for-service payments, you know, that's going to change the way you practice. So within each practice, I suppose we sort of get to a tipping point at some point. We don't know what that number is, by the way, right. uh, although people are starting to look at that. But, but I think, you know, as we change the way we pay for healthcare, I think that's going to drive some of it. We hope that we continue to, to see at least incremental progress, if not progress in leaps and bounds, and that the leaps and bounds is likely to be driven by changes in reimbursement methodology or you know, substantial disruptions in the consumer industry that drives new behavior and choices, right? So right now we're, we're very, yes. you know, our, our, our choice of provider, even though I might love to work with Dr. Danny Sands, I might love to have Dr. Danny Sands as my physician in this era of narrow networks, the likelihood that I would be able to choose a physician so interested in true collaboration with me is, you know, it's hit or miss, right? So my, my choices are very limited, but I, I think it will be interesting to see over the coming years what choice truly looks like and at what point will you know, kind of a consumer revolt, drive an increase in choice that would allow us to understand how, you know, to, to be able to better align ourselves with our care team based on mm -hmm. this type of mutual affinity for, you know, for a collaborative care or, or for an understanding that I, you know, if maybe I'm a patient who does prefer kind of the white coat syndrome type doctor where I, you know, my, I, I would prefer to be told what to do rather than to, you know, participate materially in making joint decisions like there, there are definitely going to be those those people but right now the choice is is low you know we are limited in our choices and i think as we begin to see more and more choice as as we're able to make more informed decisions and as the consumer you know getting back to consumer informatics and the, the course that you took in college I think the more information that's becoming readily available to larger and larger segments of the population online about you know clinicians about health plans and about the, the choices and the manner of practice and all the things that aren't published in a quality review or aren't published in a, you know, in a provider network analysis, we will see um, more and more opportunities to capitalize and to highlight the success of these collaborative care delivery models and the clinicians and the organizations that practice them. 
Yeah, and and I think that we need we need more transparency so that people can make better decisions, because we can't you know forget about narrow networks, which is more of a problem in some regions of the country than others. For example, in Boston, not as much of an issue as as down where you live, for example. Right. But still, we, even if we don't have a narrow network, as, as we don't have too much of in Boston, it's really hard to make a decision about which facility or which physician to go to for a particular condition. We really need transparency of information, transparency of satisfaction scores, of quality, and, and, um, and also of charges. And we need to have all these things. We need much better ways for people to make decisions. Still today, the way people often make a decision is that they ask someone they work with or someone in their family, well, who do you go to? Right. Or they ask their physicians. And you know what? When I refer a patient to uh, another physician, I'm doing it on factors that aren't necessarily the most important to you. You know, because I know the few doctors I work with, you know, the specialists I work with, and I'm going to refer you to someone who has the skills that you need and who I haven't gotten any complaints about from my patients. And, you know, I might do, you know, refer you to some people who are more likely to offer you the surgery or less likely, depending on what I think is best for you. But, but really, I don't know quality outcomes. Right. I don't know what patients are saying about them unless I get feedback. So, so it's a real challenge, even for healthcare professionals, to make a, a an educated uh, choice about their uh, healthcare profession. Absolutely, and we hope more and more that not just our patients going to be able to make these these more educated decisions. That that the education that a patient would need in order to make an informed choice starts to occur earlier in life and that more and more physicians start to think like you do and start to embrace this approach to the practice of medicine. I, I it's my sincere hope yeah. that, yeah, my sincere hope that, that I will see this happen sooner rather than later. <laughs> and, and it may be the young people that move us there, you know, because, uh, you know, when I look at my kids, they go to the doctor, they say, dad, why do I have to fill out this scat of paperwork every time I go see a, a new doctor? It's just ridiculous because they know the technology should uh, enable them to transmit that information without having to do all this paperwork every time they go see a doctor. Of course. So hopefully our young people will push us in the right direction. Absolutely. It is, it is my sincere hope. And so I will push that with my daughter as well. So I know our children are our future and we can hope to pass the torch and make sure that they, uh, they continue to push for these adoption of these models so that as we approach the, as we approach the years where they are caregivers to us, um, it, it's a different world. That's the hope. Exactly. Good. Awesome. Well, thank you so much for joining me today, Danny. This has been fantastic. Uh, if you would like to learn more about Dr. Danny Sands, you can visit drdannysands.com. That's Dr. D-A-N-N-Y-S-A-N-D-S.com. And this has been Mandy Bishop, the co-host of the Managed Care Cast for the American Journal of Managed Care. Thanks so much for listening.